Well, our reading this week comes from the book of Romans, Romans chapter 7, and we'll be reading from verse 7 through to the end of the chapter. Romans chapter 7, reading from verse 7 onwards. We remember in the first six verses that Paul has spoken of our being set free from the law, uh, that we might be not less obedient to Christ, but more obedient, joyfully obedient uh, in our following of Jesus. And then Paul picks up here in verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin by no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would have not known sin. For I would not have known what it was to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, But I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind. And making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind. But with my flesh I serve the law of sin. This is the word of the Lord and we give thanks to him for it this morning. Any time in the year that the weather turns uh, even remotely sunny, it inevitably um, draws out a bit of a response in me and in uh, our household that we want to get out into the garden. We want to enjoy being outside instead of being cooped up, especially over this last year where uh, we've spent so long indoors altogether. It's nice to get out and get the fresh air, especially uh, when we have a garden at our disposal. And it's been something we've been very grateful for. But... Having a garden, and I don't know if this is an experience, if you have a garden that you share with me, is a bit of a mixed blessing. I love the idea of a garden, and I particularly love the idea of a really well-maintained garden, but just getting there isn't quite such a joy-filled experience for me. 
I want a Chelsea flower show um, in the back garden. Something beautiful, beautifully clipped lawns and tended flower beds and um, beautifully arranged topiary and all the rest of that other stuff that goes on um, in these gardens that I suspect you sometimes see and envy um, in other people's homes, but doesn't exist, uh, it seems, when you have to be the one to put it into practice. I seem to be ground zero for every species of weed that has ever existed in creation. And I sometimes wonder if I should just give up and grow a garden with nothing but dandelions, daisies and buttercups in the knowledge that at least it will be vaguely colorful with greens and yellows and whites and so on. But my garden, as much as it might both give me joy and frustration, is a bit of a picture of my life. I love the idea of a well-ordered, well-disciplined, godly life, the kind of life I can readily identify in somebody else. And yet when push comes to shove and you have to go through the process of bringing about that life, that order, that discipline in uh, your own life, it's another story, isn't it? We want to live lives that are no longer marked by sin, lives that are pleasing and acceptable to God, and yet we struggle every day with sin. Not necessarily massive things uh, in our mind, but just these constant niggling frustrations that we always seem to get wrong, or we seem to be susceptible to a way of thinking that just drags us down. We hear the gospel. We respond to Christ. We've been transformed by him. We stand in light of his grace and his mercy and in his love. And yet so often we live day by day like we're walking through a war zone and we've got no idea what side we're actually on. We feel pulled in all sorts of different directions. And this battle between sin and righteousness goes on in our lives. And in our passage this morning, Paul draws this out as he continues to go through this process of dealing with objections people might raise to the gospel that he's presented already in the book of Romans in the first um, six chapters. He's got great encouragement for us this morning in this passage as we think about the conflict that resides within us as we battle to see sin put away and holiness and righteousness brought into our lives. And in this passage in verses 7 through to 13, Paul tells us that the law, as he's been talking about, reveals our struggle. You'll remember in uh, the last time we were in Romans in the first six verses of chapter 7 and then back into chapter 6 and before, Paul has been dealing with this issue of what do we do with the Old Testament law? Obviously at the time of his writing this, there really isn't a New Testament written down yet. He is in the process of writing it. Uh, But but what do we do with the the scriptures that come before Christ? Do we just throw them all away? Are are they worthless? Now that we've got Jesus, do we need all that went before? And, And that's something that Paul is keen to say no to, but at the same time wants to make sure we understand the nature of that relationship, that we are no longer bound by the law because Jesus, as we thought about last time in Romans, is the fulfillment of all of that. He's come to fulfill the law, to embody it, to live it out because we are not capable. And so... He asks that question, what is the nature of this relationship? And he spent time in the first six verses of chapter 7 drawing out that connection we have to obeying the law. And says we're no longer required to obey the law to be acceptable to God. Jesus makes us acceptable to God. 
And yet, there's an expectation that there will be obedience. And he says, just in brief, that the law elicits in him a sinful response. He wouldn't know to to sin if the law hadn't said to him, well, these are things you shouldn't do. And immediately in Paul's mind, he wants to do the very things that the law has said you shouldn't do. That's the contrary nature we all have to some degree or other. And Paul says in the beginning of this passage, what are we supposed to say then? Is the law sin? It makes us do these sinful things. Is that what I'm saying? And he says his favorite phrase in in the, um, the two chapters that we're considering together, six and seven, by no means. He keeps setting arguments up and then knocking them back down again. We remember that he said, when you confess your sins to God and you ask forgiveness in light of Jesus' death for your sins and you rise up to new life in him, you are free. You don't need to live out the Old Testament law, but we seek to be obedient to God out of joy for what he has made us to be. And the law that sometimes elicits in us that desire for sin by saying, don't go here, don't do that, or you should go and do these things, and we withdraw from that sinfully, that law is not in and of itself sinful. We are. We are the problem. Paul makes it clear in these first few verses that that there is nothing inherently wrong with the law, but there is something inherently wrong with us. Now, we've noted how some of the law is no longer relevant to us. It's been fulfilled in Jesus. And yet, the law still details for us the kind of people we are to be in our daily lives. We are to be honorable and upright, righteous, holy, pure, and so on. And the law details how we might do that in the day-to-day experiences we have to get our minds out of the hour that we gather together and into the place of work or into the home, our daily conduct, that's what the law does. So we don't commit murder or adultery and so on. In fact, we positively go in the other direction, just as the law and just as Jesus calls us to in the Gospels, if you remember, when he says, look, this is a matter of the heart, not the letter of the law. We, we don't want to just abide by the letter and in the, the privacy of our minds be breaking every commandment under the sun. What we want is to be living joyfully for God. And we worship God as we do that. Joyfully. Not grudgingly. Not because we have to, but because we want to. Because we've been made new. And Paul points out we are so sinful, we take that good law, that good standard, and we twist it. Not for holiness, but for sin. We hear the command not to desire other people's things, Paul says, and then we go and desire other people's things because the law says not to. The law provokes us. In the opening verses, Paul says, apart from the law, sin lies dead. And he's not saying in these verses that we should just do away with the law because if we did away with the law, we would never sin. The law causes us to sin. He's not saying that. If that was the case, we should never send another missionary anywhere in the world because surely making people aware of the law will make them more sinful. We should just leave them to get on with their lives um, untouched by the gospel. And Paul clearly doesn't believe that. He believes in the gospel going to the very ends of the earth. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me, Paul says, illustrating what he's talking about. The commandment does promise life. Live in this way and you will have a life that is lived in accordance with God and his desires. That's the problem. We can't. 
It becomes death to us, an outline, as it were, of where we've gone wrong. So he asks the question, as we struggle with sin each day, seeking, it, uh, seeking to have it put to death in us and live honoring God in everything, is the law sin? How is God helping us deal with sin if the law just produces and provokes more and more, not less? Well, Paul answers this by acknowledging head on that the problem isn't the law. He says that the law in verse 12 is holy, the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The problem is that sin is bad and sin is the cause of our problem. And that is what we need the good law to begin addressing in order for it to be dealt with by Christ. Did that which is good bring me death? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and might become sinful beyond measure to me through the commandment. What he's saying here is that we have this impossibly high standard in the law precisely to show sin in every detail, in every facet in our lives. It would be useless to us if the law wasn't rigorous, if the law sort of vaguely outlined sin and then just left us to try and figure out the rest on our own. That's not what it's like. It delves into every area of our life, every aspect of our personality, every element of action, of thought, and of speech, and it exposes sin everywhere it goes. And we struggle with that. We hate that. Nobody likes to have that revealed in their lives. And yet it's necessary so that sin might be revealed as sin and exceedingly sinful. What he means there is truly appalling as appalling as it actually is to God, although we will only ever know a part of just how awful sin is to him. When I um, went into lockdown, I decided I was going to try and um, make it a point every day of going out for a walk. And there is a sort of a, a five-kilometer loop from my house uh, round the block and back again. And it's a nice walk, um, and so it gets me out and into the fresh air. And so I did that. And over the course of the last year, as you do when you walk the same route over and over again, you notice things. You notice houses and the way that they've been um, cared for or not cared for. You notice gardens and how they've been arranged and cared for and so on. And there's a guy around the corner from me who has one of the most immaculate gardens I think I've ever seen in my life. And I don't even think it's his front garden. I think it's his back garden. It's through a little gate on the main road. His house faces the other way. And he's arranged it, or she, who knows, has arranged it magnificently. It's the kind of lawn that makes you think you probably worked on the old course at St. Andrews as a greenkeeper for most of your life and have retired now um, to Livingston. It is unbelievable. There is not a single weed anywhere in that garden. And I know because I look every time sort of in the slightly sinful hope that there'll be some this time. And it proves that this person is actually a mortal human being and not some um, savant when it comes to gardening. But there's never a weed there. I don't know how they do it. It's unbelievable. And every time I see that, I think, I would like a garden like that. And then I arrive back at my front door and think, but I don't have a garden like that. I look at the sort of lawn of weeds that I've got and the, the, the bushes along the side that are probably going to be consumed at some point by the weeds that are growing up through them and, and sort of lie um, just in disarray. And I, I, I struggle. I do often wonder sometimes if this has anything to do with the fact that the girls like to pick and blow every dandelion clock they can find all over my front garden. And I do often wonder why dandelions haven't taken over the earth at this point. But sin, like 
the seeds and the roots of the weeds that are everywhere in my garden lie dormant in our lives, in our hearts the whole time. We can dress up the garden to look beautiful all we want, but inevitably, as soon as you get just a drop of rain and a hint of sunshine, everything bursts back up out of the ground again, and you see just how uh, much work there is still to be done. You can't always see it, but it is always there. And sin, in the same way, is still present in our lives in so many ways. And we, we sort of get ourselves in order and we straighten ourselves out and it's fine. But inevitably a moment comes where it all comes erupting back up through the surface again. In Jesus' power, sin's power is broken. But it's still there. It still presents itself through our body and up through everything we do and marks our lives. And The goodness of the law, the perfection of the law, the rigor of the law is there precisely to reveal in every dimension the problems we have so that like the weeds, they may be torn out, root and branch, and replaced with something else, something better, something right and fitting, something beautiful. So firstly, we see that the struggle with righteousness and sin that we all experience in this is something that every Christian does experience. We sometimes, I suspect, doubt our salvation because of the struggles we have with sin, don't we? At the very least, I know um, many people do. We wonder if we could possibly be acceptable to God after so many failures. The same thing sometimes over and over again. We think maybe there's something wrong with us as Christians. Maybe we're defective. Maybe we just don't get it. Maybe we're just going to stay this way forever. We'll never be any better than we are. We know from Scripture we've been saved from sin and unrighteousness, but we find it hard to put sin to death day by day, to live righteous lives. But we don't fear because this is a struggle that every genuine Christian will always have in this life. The non-Christian has no struggle with this at all because, well, what's the difference between a weed and a flower at the end of the day? It's just a matter of perspective, isn't it? I was reminded by that by my biology teacher in school. There is no such thing as a weed, biologically speaking. It's just all flowers. They're just a flower in the wrong place. If you're growing thistles and a rose grows up through the middle, the rose is the weed and the thistles are the proper flowers. And this is the perspective of our world. There is no sin. It's just different behavior in in the right or in the wrong context. And that's really all it is. But this is actually a nonsense. But the Christian struggles with this. The non-Christian doesn't. Non-Christians aren't focused on pleasing God. Why would they? He's not there. But you do care. It is a concern for you. And the law tells us this. And this is why we have it to help God's people to live positively for him and to help them identify sin and have Christ deal with it. The law is incredibly important. It reveals the nature of our struggle. And our struggle, we find Paul telling us in verse 14 through to 20, is with sin. And it's important we remember that. And it sounds kind of silly to say that. Of course we would all recognize that. And if I asked any of you that, I'm sure you would give that answer. Our struggle is with sin. But what does that actually mean? Our struggle isn't with the law, with the word of God, that's too harsh or difficult for us to follow. It's with sin. I think we often get that the wrong way around, often without thinking. 
We read God's word and we struggle to see how it fits in the 21st century. Certainly our society would lay that accusation at our door that the Bible is not fit for the 21st century in our culture at the moment, especially at the moment with all of the things that are going on um, and changing your perception of yourself, your self-identity and your place in society and so on. But if our struggle is with the Bible, then what help do we have? If our struggle is with the Word of God, it's with God Himself. And so if we want to live for God, that's no place for us to start. Instead, we recognize that our struggle isn't with the Word of God being too rigorous, too harsh, too out of date, too outmoded. Our struggle is with sin that leads us constantly to want to deny what God's Word says. Now, that doesn't mean we can be lazy and not bother to figure out what God's Word says and apply it to our lives today because God's Word was written in a specific place at a specific time by people that are no longer alive today and it was inspired by God's Holy Spirit and it is God's Word from beginning to end and there is no question about that but we need to do work sometimes to figure out what's the difference between here today in Livingston in the 21st century and Rome in the 1st century because those two situations aren't exactly identical. We need to be diligent But we need to recognize that God's word is not our problem. Sin is our problem. We go to God's word to reveal sin and to find out how we put it right. Equally, God's word doesn't help us in and of itself to deal with these things. It reveals the problem and it reveals the solution. But it can't make us do anything with that information. In the end, we find that God, by his spirit, reveals to us sin, and our desire is then kindled in us to go and see it dealt with, and Christ comes to our rescue. Just this past uh, couple of weeks, we were getting some work done in our house. We got um, some of our windows replaced, and as the, the window in our living room had been replaced, I was incredibly impressed with the workman who came in and did all the work, created an unbelievable mess, but then tidied them tidied up you know, after themselves remarkably well. I was, I was genuinely thoroughly impressed with how clean the place was, given the amount of stew that was kicked up everywhere over our whole living room. And I, sort of, before Elaine and, and the girls came home, they'd been away out somewhere while all the chaos was going on, I thought I'd better be the sort of, diligent husband. And I hoovered and I, I dusted and so on. And it was great. Everything looked fine. It was really quite cloudy. It had been raining a little bit outside and... Um, but I, I got the place done. And as Elaine came back in, the sun broke through the clouds, as it always does when she walks into our home. But it, it broke through the clouds and shone through our living room window. Um, and she said, oh, my word, look at the dust. And I thought, I've just dusted the place and hoovered. How can there be any dust? But as it shone across the surface of our piano, which had its lid down, you could see just this film of dust and grit over absolutely every surface on the piano. It was unbelievable. Now, I would be foolish in the extreme to try and convince my wife that the light had caused the dust to be there in the first place. That's not how dust works, and it's not how light works. All the light did was illuminate the presence of the dust that was already there. Now, I would like to point out it was in the air and had settled on the piano in the intervening time after I'd finished cleaning and and Elaine had got home. I really genuinely did dust. The light illuminated it all. The light couldn't do anything to clean the dust off either. It could merely illuminate its presence, the problem. 
And Paul says in our passage, the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. And that's the nature of the problem we have with the law. The law is spiritual. He doesn't mean it's just sort of spiritual and it doesn't have any impact on real life, if I can put it that way, on, on the physical world and what we do and touch and say and, and, and so on. It's just an internal thing. That's not what he means. What he means is that the law has been given by God and it speaks to us. It speaks to our hearts. It, it redefines who we are. It, it speaks to our nature. But unless that nature then is worked out, it has no impact on the physical world around us. Unless we take God's word and actually apply it, it does nothing. It just sits there. Paul draws out a a difference here between the spirit and the flesh. Now, again, just a word of caution. We don't want to tip into um, into the view of the ancient world that still exists today that everything physical is evil and rotten and bad and we should have nothing to do with it and everything sort of spiritual or mental or issues of the heart, all of them are good and right. And, and so we should seek to just put them forward and deny the physical world. We heard of any of that in the news lately? Physical world is, is really just to be sort of completely enslaved to what goes on inside my mind or according to my feelings. That's, that's a, a, an ancient view of the world that existed and was a problem that plagued the church. It came from Gnosticism and, and other um, religions around the first century. Paul isn't saying that the the spirit is good and the physical world is bad. What he's saying is that the spirit is transformed by Christ and by God's word, but his flesh is weak and struggles to keep up. he, he, He wants to do what is right, but he just constantly is besieged by temptation. That's what he's saying. I do what I don't want to, um, to, I don't want to do, and I don't do what I know I ought to. You can hear the conflict in Paul, and I'm so encouraged by these words because it just outlines my life. I know exactly what I ought to do. I know when I should speak and and when I should stay silent, but for some reason, there is something that happens between the head and the heart and, and the mouth or the body that just breaks that just seamless enacting of, of what I know to be right. And I end up doing things and saying things, and I think, why on earth did I do that? I knew that was going to cause problems. I just can't seem to help myself. And Paul says, I was sold under sin. It's that slavery language that we kind of get that, that I'm just bound. I'm, I, I, I can't help it. I hate it. I hate this reality. But I'm chained to it. It's not going to kill me, Paul was saying. He's, he's free from the punishment of sin. And he's free from the power of sin. He no longer needs to fear that he is, um, that he is bound to it. And cannot do anything other than sin. He's not saying that. But he is saying that he still struggles. He is not free from temptation. And he isn't free from actually sinning. And I think we can all understand totally where Paul's coming from, can't we? Like Paul, we need the spirit to be changed by Christ. And for the flesh to follow gradually, bit by bit. And so the law is constantly needed by us to identify sin day by day and then have it drive us to Christ who addresses these sins and reforms us and refines us. 
I realise that I'm harping on a lot about the garden. I spent a bit of time in the garden yesterday and there was much frustration and you can tell it's just all bubbling to the surface today. But I remember a few years ago um, in our previous home, I was speaking to someone who lived around the corner. He was a member of the church actually um, in Cowdenbeath and I was just lamenting the state of my grass in Cowdenbeath and it seems to just have followed me here uh, to Livingston. And I said, I just... There's just weeds everywhere. It's, there's probably about 10 actual blades of grass in there. The rest is just moss and, and dandelions and so on. And he said, oh, I just don't care anymore. I've just given up. As long as it's green, I don't care what it is. I'll just run the mower over it and it'll stay green and that's fine. And that's exactly what we tend to do with our lives, isn't it? As long as it sort of looks fine from a distance, it's okay. We don't need to worry about anything else. But that doesn't solve the problem, does it? Looking kind of okay doesn't solve the problem of sin. So that the lives that we tend to lead where we kind of sort of hope that we can fake it till we make it, that we put a, you know, a, a bright face on things and hope that everything will be okay and so on, but we're, we're still struggling away inside, that just, it just doesn't fly, does it? It doesn't work. As soon as you get close, you really inspect your life, you realize there's just weeds everywhere. And it's a constant struggle for us to kill that off. But the law helps us to see sin for what it is. Now, we might think, how much help do we really need? Do we need all of this? I know what sin looks like in my life. I'm painfully aware of what sin is like and what it manifests itself as in my life. I don't need all of this uh, law. But are we really that good? Can we always identify sin? I wonder. When we struggle with sin in our daily lives... It's not just that we know that we're not that good. I think we sometimes struggle to actually see what's leading us into this problem in the first place. I think very often we walk blindly into situations where we find ourselves sinning and we can't figure out how that's happened, how you've succumbed to that temptation when you were adamant you weren't going to do it ever, ever again because we're actually not good at spotting sin. The reason is we do what Paul does. Sometimes, often, in fact, is we let the body dictate to the mind, to use Paul's language. We let the flesh dictate to the spirit. We live in a world that is constantly telling us to sin. Constantly. Put yourself first. You are the most important. Your views are the most significant. Your truth is reality. Not God's truth. Not your neighbor's truth. Not anything else. You. You define reality. That is to take on the character of God, to define reality according to your own whims and how you feel on Tuesday or whenever it might be. That's the ocean in which we swim constantly and we can't help but take on some of that water. And that is the purpose of the law. Our flesh is allowed to control the mind, but the law points us to Christ and reforms the mind and in us makes us desire to have the mind dictate to the flesh, not the other way around. The mind, the heart, we can, we can put it any way um, that we want. This is the purpose. As we chew over God's word daily, as we meditate on it, we do not just hear what God is like, but we begin to take on these views that we read of. We begin to hear what God is like and then seek to embody that kind of life daily. And it's a struggle and we're going to sometimes fail. But that is the prevailing thought in our heads. that We will go in that direction, however much we may sort of bump around a bit and sometimes run off the road only to be brought back. 
Why does God want me to take extra care in this particular area of life? Why does he make such a big deal about sexual sin? Why is there a problem with idolatry? Why does he keep talking about all of these things? These are deeply significant things to every one of us, whether we realize it or not. And as we meditate on God's word, he begins to reveal in concrete everyday examples from our own lives, our own experience, how these things connect. And we begin to desire that these things should be rooted out and we should be able to live clean. We find that the law reveals to us the nature of our struggle. And the nature of our struggle is a struggle against sin and not against the law. And lastly, we find that Jesus carries us through constantly struggling in verses 21 to 25. When I go on that walk that I mentioned earlier on, there are loads and loads of really old trees um, around our neighborhoods, trees that are, I guess, a 100 to 200 years old or so, and loads of them have grown up deeply impacted by other plants that have colonized them over the years. And it's fascinating to see that. These massive trees that must weigh tens of tons with a huge reach and foliage goes all over the place, and yet their um, trunk has been warped and twisted by other plants that have entwined themselves around and have molded and shaped the tree, or the branches move in certain directions because of the tree next door that is pressed on them as it's grown, and so the whole thing shifts and moves. It's amazing to see that. Even when the plants that have caused that damage have died and been taken away, it still leaves its mark on the shape of the tree. It'll never change. It'll always be that way forever. The bark is still scarred by the imprint of the invading plants that they've left behind. And sometimes invading plants grow back because the root hasn't fully been ripped out. And again, our lives are like this, Paul says. He says he's a wretched man who will deliver him from this body of death. It just constantly dogs him and he's really frustrated by it. But he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is an answer. There is a way for this to be dealt with, for us to be put right. Our lives are freed from sin in Christ, but sin leaves its mark on us. But over time, Christ tends to us. He leaves us free from from the effects of these plants. He straightens us up. He changes us. We'll still have all those experiences that we've learned from, and yet we will be stronger for it. And sometimes when sin begins to grow back, Christ comes and roots it all out all over again. He kills off the invading, choking, disfiguring sin and begins to straighten us out. He makes sure the invading plant of sin can't kill us. But as it grows back, he tends to us constantly. That's the language that Jesus uses, isn't he? Of of him as we grow in him and the work of his heavenly father as the vine dresser in John's gospel. If you're connected to me, you'll have life and life indeed, abundant life to put out not just leaves but fruit. But if you're a dead branch, then my father's the vine dresser. He'll come along and just prune you right off. He tends to the, the plant that is our lives to make sure that we grow and we grow well and we grow strong and we honor and glorify him. Richard Sibbs, a great um, luminary of the Anglican Church in many years gone by, talks about how this is not just the work that Christ does. It's the work that Christ loves to do in our lives. 
We sometimes feel, because we've read passages of Scripture that condemn sin, that sin is something that should be a shame to us, which it is, and therefore that we shouldn't ever want to talk about it to another human being and certainly not to God because it embarrasses us that we failed him in this way. So we don't bring our sins to God as often as we ought to because we're embarrassed, we're ashamed. And Sib says this gets everything back to front and upside down. This is not the Christian life and that's not how Christ sees you. He doesn't see you as some shameful little failure because you come to him for the umpteenth time struggling with this or that problem. Jesus loves it when you come to him and ask for forgiveness because he loves to forgive sin. And in quoting Sibs Dane Ortland um, in his little book, Gentle and Lowly, which I would heartily recommend to you, points out, he uses this analogy that if you were a doctor in a third world nation, you'd been sent as a medical missionary to somewhere, let's say in sub-Saharan Africa, and you set up your clinic. You're almost uniquely in missionaries, well-funded. You have all the resources you need. You have a building. You're ready to go, and you open the clinic, and no one comes. And you say to everybody locally, just come and we can help you with all of these problems with the cuts and the scrapes and, and the problems with your eyes and with the, the broken limbs and whatever else it is. We can, we can fix you up for free. You don't have to pay anything. Just come and we'll treat you. And no one comes. He said, you would be intensely frustrated. But what would happen the first day someone walked through the door? How overjoyed would you be that somebody has come to avail themselves of the treatment you desperately want them to have? That is what Jesus is like. Someone who has come and has died to deal with your sin and wants you to come and deal with it with him. Forgive you, cleanse you, build you up, strengthen you and send you back out a little more capable of of dealing, resisting with temptation than you were before. That's what Jesus loves to do. Paul says, I'm a wretched man. Who can deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus is the answer. And Jesus loves being the answer. And earnestly desires that we go and avail ourselves of the help that he provides. Paul offers us all encouragement this morning as we struggle to deal with the problem of sin. We come to God's word and we have it shine its light into our lives. And it's ugly. There's no getting around that. Sin is ugly. But as it's brought to light, we are able to then bring it to God and ask that he would deal with it. When it's exposed, we know it's a problem and we know that we have a Savior who would be overjoyed to have us overcome this particular problem, deal with this sin, and go on glorifying God as a result. Our struggle isn't with God. Our struggle isn't with his word that it exerts too much upon your life or it's embarrassing or that it's outmoded. That is not your problem. Your problem is with sin. So let's help one another leave nothing in our lives that dishonors the God who made us. Let's help one another to root up all of those problem weeds in our lives that blight what could be a truly magnificent garden and one day will be when Christ is finished with you. Let's call one another to faithfulness in Christ to be his own dear children because God calls us and blesses us beyond measure in his son each and every day. Christian, you will struggle with sin every day of your life. It won't kill you, but it will be a problem. 
But Christ has come to be the solution to that problem. So let's avail ourselves of the solution that he provides, the grace and the love that he showers upon us, and the strength that he sends us out in light of. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that we have in Jesus a perfect Savior. And we have in your word, Lord, a perfect standard that reveals to us the blemishes, the stains, the weeds. Lord God, we thank you for that. Although it's painful for us, no no one wants to acknowledge there's a problem with their life. And yet, Lord, in the acknowledging of it, we also then recognize something must be done. And we thank you that that person who comes to deal with it is not a normal uh, human being like us gathered here this morning. It is the sinless Son of God. And we thank you, Lord, that it is Jesus' joy to forgive us our sins. It is his great pleasure to draw us into your family, to cleanse us of all unrighteousness, and to send us back out into the world every single day to live for your glory. So, Lord God, help us to deal with the shame, the embarrassment of failure. And, Lord God, we ask that you would have us cling to Christ as your word reveals our need of him daily. And, Lord, help us to find joy in that. For, Lord, every time we are forgiven, we are made that little bit stronger, we grow that little bit more, and we glorify your name in ever-increasing degree. We thank you so much for our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we ask, Lord, that you would send us out to live with him and for him this coming week. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.